Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. In 1999, the tight-knit community of Jackson, Michigan, was sent reeling by the shocking actions of a local man. He brutally assaulted his wife, dismembered her body, and disposed of the evidence in a manner that left investigators horrified. The question that haunted everyone was, what could push a man to perpetrate such unspeakable atrocities? This is Monsters. In the quiet shadow of the Great Lakes during the tumultuous decade of the 1990s, Jackson, Michigan stood as a testament to the resilience amidst the economic upheaval of the time. This heartland town, once a bustling hub of manufacturing and industry, found itself at a crossroads grappling with the harsh realities of a changing world. The once thriving neighborhoods felt the tremors of change. As factories downsized or shuttered entirely, employment soared and families faced the grim specter of financial uncertainty. The promise of brighter days began to wane, casting long shadows over the community's spirit. Crime haunted the streets. As economic despair gripped the city, criminal activity often filled the void left behind by vanishing job opportunities. Local law enforcement grappled with the surging tide of illicit activities, attempting to secure a semblance of safety amid the storm. But even with its crime-ridden streets, no one could have anticipated the chilling discovery carefully arranged on the porch of an abandoned house. On July 13, 1999, a distressing report reached the ears of the Jackson community. Patricia Arts, a woman known for her strong ties to her family and unwavering devotion to her husband Kevin Arts, had gone missing. The situation was particularly perplexing, as Patricia had always maintained regular contact with her loved ones and had never gone a day without reaching out. The alarm bells grew louder when Patricia's sister, Cynthia Powers, took the courageous step of reporting her sister's disappearance. What made her report even more chilling was her suspicion that Kevin, Patricia's own husband, might be connected to her vanishing act. The suspicion began to unfurl when Cynthia confronted Kevin about Patricia's whereabouts. His explanation was that they had engaged in a heated argument, leading Patricia to leave in a specific vehicle. However, Cynthia knew that couldn't be true, because the last conversation she had with her sister had revealed that Patricia had sold that very vehicle. Something was amiss with Kevin's behavior. He had withdrawn into himself, denying visitors access to their residence. Cynthia couldn't shake the feeling that Kevin held the answers to Patricia's puzzling disappearance. She feared that he might have harmed or even killed her sister, leaving her for dead in Kip's Pizza and Taco, the restaurant where Patricia and Kevin resided. On July 15, 1999, a concerned officer received a dispatch call to visit the address at 2319 West Main Street in Summit Township, located in Jackson County. The report pertained to a welfare check with potential ties to a missing persons case. 
Upon arriving at the location, the officer found Kevin seated in a backyard swing, and they engaged in a conversation about the family's growing unease surrounding Patricia's disappearance. Kevin's father was also at the address. Sensing the need to investigate further, the officer sought Kevin's consent to conduct a quick search of the restaurant area. Kevin granted permission. They walked around the building's western side towards the front door, but an unexpected turn occurred. Kevin, displaying unusual behavior, halted about three feet from the entrance. He uttered, quote, I can't do this. Dad, take me home so that I can take a nap at your house, before abandoning the door and climbing into his father's vehicle. When questioned about his sudden change of heart, Kevin attributed it to fatigue. However, after gentle prodding, Kevin eventually agreed to proceed with the restaurant inspection. As he retrieved his keys from his pocket, his hands trembled noticeably. Inside the restaurant, the officer's initial observations revealed nothing overtly suspicious or out of the ordinary, except for scattered newspapers on the floor near the grill. The situation remained perplexing. While they had no concrete evidence that any foul play had occurred, investigators were suspicious and had the keen sense that something was off. Upon further investigation into the restaurant, alongside the newspapers on the floor, there were rubber grease mats with suspicious brown spots. There were also splotches beneath the newspapers. There were light brown or red-colored drips on the tiles leading from the fryer area to a sink next to a gray garbage can. Inside the sink, a large metal pan contained what seemed to be cooked material. The garbage can held paper towels soaked in what appeared to be diluted blood, akin to the type found with raw meat. On the bathroom, there was foam on the floor near the dryer, and inside the dryer was more foam along with some sort of pillow or cushion. While searching for Patricia's clothes in the drawers, they found balled-up underwear, and in the closet, there was a small gray purse that belonged to her. The search continued to the north side of the residence. Investigators were in search of a white box Kevin was seen carrying earlier, believing it may have some clues as to what really happened to Patricia. Suspicions led them to a neighboring residence where they noticed a white box on an enclosed porch. Opening it revealed a clear garbage bag containing what appeared to be bone fragments and what was confirmed to be a human skull. The area was swiftly secured with crime scene tape while Kevin was interviewed about what they had found. After the interview, he was placed under arrest and transported to Jackson County Sheriff's Department. It seemed that after 12 years of marriage, Kevin murdered his wife in cold blood. As the investigation unfolded, they would find more disturbing evidence and insight into a marriage that was anything but happy. Friends would later recall how abusive and volatile the relationship truly was. One time, two friends were on a cruise with the married couple with the hopes of strengthening their friendship. Instead, the cruise exposed Kevin's excessive control over Patricia. He became extremely possessive when another individual touched Patricia during a conversation. Patricia was living in fear. She was closely monitored and controlled. Kevin was described as controlling and confrontational. He also had a bad habit of sharing inappropriate, sexually explicit jokes in mixed company. One day, Patricia confided in a friend about an incident where he had attempted to smother her with a pillow during an argument over sex, causing Patricia to fear his anger. Another person came forward to provide significant details about the case. 
In the early 1980s, possibly around 1982 or 1983, this witness had been a regular patron of Kevin's business in Michigan Center. He was particularly fond of the hot sauce served there, which led to his frequent visits. During one of those visits, he remembers talking to Kevin. It was around the time a notorious serial killer had been arrested and generated extensive news coverage. While discussing the capture of this serial killer, specifically the fact that the police had been alerted due to the odor of decomposing bodies around the suspect's residence, Kevin made a disturbing statement. He said that if you wanted to commit murder without getting caught, they should take certain steps. Kevin elaborated by suggesting that after dismembering the victim's body, one should boil the remains. That, Kevin claimed, would eliminate any foul odors that might attract police attention. And sure enough, it would be exactly how he murdered his wife. In their Jackson apartment, Kevin hit Patricia on the head with a metal bar, then put her body in a sleeping bag and dragged it into the restaurant area. He cleaned the apartment and even moved furniture to cover stains in the carpet. When he went back to the restaurant, he stripped Patricia naked, dismembered her body, and then boiled, broiled, and fried her remains in the restaurant over the following two days. At trial, the defense maintained that Kevin was mentally insane and not responsible for his actions. The lawyer explained that Kevin had been admitted to the hospital on June 29, 1999, because he was suffering from a brain hemorrhage. He underwent surgery and was released from the hospital on July 2nd. After that, numerous family members and friends saw him and the descriptions of his mental health varied widely. Some said that he seemed dazed, dopey, and childlike, but others said that he was communicative and conscious of what was occurring. The defense presented two experts who testified that he was legally insane at the time of the murder. Edward Cook, a neuropsychologist, testified that Kevin had an organic, psychotic condition and, because of his mental illness, lacked substantial capacity to appreciate the nature, quality, or wrongfulness of his conduct. Cook believed that Kevin was insane before and after his brain surgery and that he struck the victim, believing she was the devil, but he was the only person with that belief. The second doctor, Bradley Suick, a clinical psychologist and board-certified neuropsychologist, testified that Kevin's cerebral bleed was a deep, destructive, severe hemorrhagic stroke, which not only affected Kevin's speech, but also affected his ability to think in a logical and rational manner. Suick believed that the stroke and surgery caused a devastating injury to Kevin's nervous system and that he suffered a great destruction of nerve cells in his brain. Suet concluded that Kevin was in a confused, psychotic state at the time he killed the victim. The neurosurgeon who performed Kevin's surgery testified for the prosecution that Kevin had a cerebral hematoma on the left temporal lobe of his brain, which controls speech. The clot was present in the brain for one to two days and was not acute. The evacuation of the blood clot was relatively easy and no abnormality was found in the brain. The cause of the hemorrhage was never determined. After surgery, Kevin suffered from aphasia, which is when someone mixes up words when they're speaking. While his process of thinking was not impaired, the conversion of thought to speech was impaired. The neurosurgeon testified that there was no nerve damage to the brain. Dr. Joseph Galdi, a forensic pathologist and neuropsychologist, testified that there was no basis to conclude that Kevin met the criteria for legal insanity. Galdi testified that problem-solving and analytical functions are controlled by the front brain, which was not affected in Kevin's case. Kevin's residual aphasia would not have caused him to commit illegal activity. 
prosecutors contended that Kevin had killed his wife because she objected to his marijuana use, particularly in the days following the surgery to repair his brain hemorrhage. Ultimately, the jury rejected Kevin's insanity claims and convicted him of first-degree murder. He received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Kevin's legal battle took a new turn when he appealed to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, arguing that crucial evidence had been withheld during his 2001 trial. That evidence revolved around an exculpatory opinion from Dr. Joseph Galdi. In 2008, Dr. Galdi testified that Kevin suffered from a marijuana-induced psychosis. That revelation stemmed from a letter Dr. Galdi had written in September of 2007 to a U.S. District Court judge in Detroit. Astonishingly, that critical information had not surfaced during the initial trial. Subsequently, an evidentiary hearing addressed the exclusion, with Circuit Court Judge Thomas Wilson ultimately deciding that it would not have led to a reasonable probability of acquittal if presented. Judge Wilson noted that the information had been known before Kevin's trial. Kevin persisted in asserting that the information could have strengthened his insanity defense. Faced with unsuccessful attempts in state court, he turned to the federal courts for relief. However, the U.S. Court of Appeals found that there were compelling reasons to believe that the omission of Dr. Galdi's opinion would not have impacted Kevin's trial significantly. Kevin's attorney, who had since become a Jackson County District Court judge, testified in 2008 that he would not have used the marijuana-induced psychosis opinion. He explained that their legal strategy had focused on arguing that Kevin was psychotic at the time of the murder due to a brain injury, and this argument was effectively presented by their defense experts to the jury. The case of Kevin Arts is a harrowing and tragic tale of domestic violence and murder. The tragedy of Patricia Arts's life cut short and the impact on her family and friends serve as a stark reminder of the devastating consequences of domestic violence and conflict left unchecked by a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.